So we're looking at our study on eschatology, continuing in it today, looking at last things. We've already covered the rapture of the church, and we've also covered the uh, scenario that is described in Ezekiel 38 and 39, that battle around uh, attacking Israel, uh, Israel being attacked by these nations that are around her, led by Russia and her premier, nations like Turkey and Iran, uh, Sudan, Ethiopia, Libya, uh, possibly uh, um, parts of, of Europe around that area, those kinds of things, some of the Stan nations, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, and such, uh, nations that are going to come against Israel in that scenario, uh, Upon uh, in, in which scenario God will intervene directly so that the nations, including uh, his own chosen people, Israel, will know that he is the Lord. And so we spoke about uh, the rapture of the church, the church being snatched away. We've talked about Ezekiel 38 and 39, and we've also talked about how these two events will likely have something to do with the world's readiness to receive the Antichrist as her leader, uh, behind whom they will ultimately coalesce to come against Christ at his return at the end of the tribulation period, at the end of the Great Tribulation. So uh, we've covered these things. Now, one of the reasons I put Ezekiel 38 and 39 at the beginning of our study on eschatology, or toward the beginning of our eschatology, uh, study is because uh, I, I believe that that scenario that is described is a separate and preceding uh, event that takes place before the 70th week of Daniel, the last seven-year period of, of man's dominion on the earth before Christ returns and establishes his kingdom. Uh, and the reason I make a thing of that <laughs> is because in uh, toward the end of Revelation, Revelation 20, we see Gog and Magog, who are the prominent figures uh, in this coalition of nations coming against Israel <coughs> in Ezekiel 30 and 39. Gog and Magog, uh, Magog, uh, the, the, lead, the, the nation, and Gog, her premier, her leader, are mentioned uh, at the end of Revelation, again in chapter 20, toward the end of Revelation, coming against Christ with, uh, as part of the remaining people of unbelief at that time who will come against Christ in Jerusalem. That mention of them in that scenario in Revelation 20 has caused many to think that Ezekiel 38 and 39 is a prophecy of that event after the millennial reign. Uh, I think it's not. I think that uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39 is a localized conflict that happens prior to Daniel's 70th week and is not the same thing as what we see happening in Revelation chapter 20. So I, I make that distinction there. I also put the rapture of the church at the beginning of our eschatology study because I believe the rapture of the church will also precede Daniel's 70th week. Now, there is some worthwhile debate and discussion about whether Ezekiel 38 and 39 or the rapture of the church will come first in terms of the unfolding uh, uh, slate of last things that are coming. I, I tend to lean toward the idea that the rapture will probably be the next major event uh, prophetically speaking, as it unfolds, but it could be Ezekiel 38 and 39. But I do tend to think that these two events, in whatever order they happen, I think these two events, and we, uh, our, um, our last podcast dealt with the question of, uh, or one of our last podcasts dealt with the question of how these things may have a lot to do again with preparing the world to receive the Antichrist. So you can listen to those and get that uh, discussion again. I don't want to necessarily cover all that again. But as we make our way through this study, those are the things that we have spoken of already. 
we have a lot of road le- uh, yet ahead to cover. And so today I thought this would be a good time to put another passage uh, in the New Testament into view and to, to begin to take time to unpack it. And this is Matthew 24. So if you've got your Bible ready, I'll encourage you to open to Matthew 24. Uh, and it's important to know that when we talk about Matthew 24, we are also talking about Mark chapter 13 and also Luke chapter 21. Uh, in these in the three, these three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have uh, the discussion of what is called the, the Olivet Discourse. And this is because Jesus gave this teaching on the Mount of Olives. And so it's called the Olivet Discourse. This is where Jesus gets along with his disciples and begins to explain what the last days will look like. Now, it's interesting to me um, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke each contain this discussion. John's gospel does not. Now, John is very different in his gospel for many reasons, uh, or in many ways, I should say. I think one of the reasons why his gospel is different is because he had the benefit of the previous three gospels already having been written. And so he, uh, of course, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, but his gospel contains mostly stuff that's not in the other gospels. There are a few things that are consistent in all four gospels. Uh, All four accounts cover a few items, but John's gospel, it's it's distinct from the other three in what it covers, in its style, uh, in, in much of its approach. And on top of that, John is also the one through whom the Holy Spirit gives us the book of Revelation. So in a way, Matthew, Mark, and Luke can tarry, uh, contain this uh, discussion of last things in the Olivet Discourse, but John actually gives us the far more expanded version of the revelation of Christ uh, in the book of Revelation. And so, uh, so really, all four gospel writers essentially have a discussion on last things. Now, Matthew 24 is typically the passage that is, is leaned into when it comes to this discussion of the Olivet Discourse. But I will say again, Mark's account and Luke's account are also important for a number of reasons. Uh, we'll talk about why Luke's is particularly important in just a moment. But um, in Matthew, we have an account written by one of the disciples who was there hearing this discussion from Jesus' own mouth. And so Matthew is giving an account of his own memory of this. Uh, Mark is somebody who... Um, was not a disciple uh, at the time of Jesus' ministry, was not one of the apostles at least. Uh, And so, uh, however, it is historically generally viewed that Mark's gospel is the relating of Peter's testimony of the ministry of Christ. And so if that is in fact the case, then Mark is recording what Peter remembers from this discussion and what the Holy Spirit, of course, recalled to his mind. I don't mean to make it sound like this is purely a human endeavor. It's not. This is actually under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, Luke was not there at all. Luke is a Gentile who came to faith later, and, and, and part of what may, in fact, be Paul's court documents, he records the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts as part of what Paul will be using as part of his testimony before Caesar one day. Well, Luke is a not only a physician, a physician, as we see in Scripture, but he's also a master historian, and he contains lots and lots and lots of details in his gospel that give it a, a lot of opportunity to be verified historically. Well, one of, he becomes one of those who, in doing interviews about this discussion that Jesus gives, he records uh, um, the Olivet Discourse as well. And he also includes some information that Matthew and Mark don't include in theirs, as a matter of fact. Uh, we'll talk about that in just a moment. So that being said, that's a little bit of background on this uh, on this discussion that Jesus shares, this teaching from uh, the Mount of Olives. And so let's go ahead and read in Matthew verses uh, uh, chapter 24, verses 1 
through three. And um, again, my my intention is to do these posts uh, on eschatology in about twenty minute or so episodes, um, just uh, so they're able to be kind of digested and and um, we don't go on too long and that kind of thing. So we'll pick up next time where we leave off today, but we'll get through at least verse three today. Where it says, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. Now, Mark, by the way, records that the disciples were marveling at the temple, and they were talking to Jesus about how grand this structure was and all this kind of thing. To which Jesus responds in verse 2 Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. That must have been rather shocking to them. Um, now, this temple, by the way, is the temple that was begun in Haggai's time. Uh, if you remember, Solomon's temple had been destroyed, uh, and so the the call to rebuild the temple under the time of Ezra and Nehemiah ultimately comes to be where um, they begin the reworking of the temple under Haggai's time. Uh, it had begun, but it had started to fall away. People had begun to get more consumed with building their own homes and going on with their lives, and the temple which had been begun had been left in disrepair. It just it wasn't finished. And so through Haggai, God convicts the people and says, consider your ways. Uh, now this temple, Haggai's temple, was something that was far less impressive structurally than Solomon's was. As a matter of fact, Haggai describes how there were older people there hearing his prophecy, Haggai's words, uh, who were weeping over the new temple because they remembered the old temple before it had been destroyed. And they were so impressed with that temple that this one seemed a meager thing by comparison. But Haggai goes on to encourage the work to continue because the greatness or the grandeur, the splendor of this of this temple will be even greater than Solomon's. And you're left scratching your head saying, well, Solomon's was, you know, uh, impressive. It was huge and ornate and beautiful and grand and all this. Haggai's temple was not that. In what way would this temple be greater than the previous one? Well, this temple would have the distinct uh, element of Christ himself going to minister in the courts of this temple, around the area of this temple. It would be here that Jesus, around this very temple, that Jesus would one day minister. Well, that temple eventually uh, was built upon by Herod the Great in an effort to sort of uh, win the hearts of the people and keep them, maybe win the hearts of the people is too strong, but to keep them uh, sort of in line, he sort of ingratiated himself to them by building upon Haggai's temple into this grand structure known as Herod's temple. It's really just the second temple, but it was built upon. And so it was a, a construction program ensued under Herod that built out this temple into a much grander structure than it had been previously. And so the disciples are looking at Herod's temple, and they're seeing this beautiful structure, these huge stones piled one up upon another and all this kind of thing. Uh, today, as a matter of fact, uh, you can go, uh, if you take a tour, you can go under the Temple Mount uh, into the tunnels under there, and you can see some of the stones under the platform that the temple uh, would have stood on, and you can see how great some of these stones were, many tons in some cases. And, so, and you also, interestingly, can see stones lying on the hillside down from where the temple once stood. More on that in just a moment. But they're talking about how great this temple is. And Jesus again says to them, verse 2, Do you see not all see all these things? Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, and here are two or possibly three questions that are being asked. 
The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? Question number one. Uh, And then the next two could maybe constitute one question, arguably, but they go on to say, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The end of the age, potentially speaking of Christ's coming, and so that's why we can debate about whether that's actually two questions or one. But in any case, they ask him these questions based on what he has just said. Okay, this temple is beautiful. It's extravagant. It's huge. This is a, a, a fitting place. And Jesus said, it's all going to come down. Well, when is that going to happen? Now, what's interesting is when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke's accounts of the Olivet Discourse, Matthew and Mark don't record an answer to this, but Luke does. In chapter 21, verses 20 through 24, uh, Luke records Jesus' response to that first question, uh, where he talks about the coming of the Gentiles to surround Jerusalem and ultimately bring it down and everything. So he talks about when that will happen. Historically, that happens in 70 AD. And so uh, under Titus Vespasian, and I think it was two Roman legions, he brought in to sack Jerusalem. As he attacked the city, his desire, Titus's desire, was to keep the temple intact. Um, however, a fire broke out in the temple, uh, whether on purpose or through carelessness, a fire breaks out in the temple, and the gold in the temple begins to mil- uh, melt and begins to seep in between the cracks in the stones. And so the stones are pushed all off of one another in order to get the gold out. And in doing so, they actually fulfilled what Jesus said was going to be. You can see some of those stones, again, down the hillside, uh, down from the Temple Mount area, even today. And so um, so that, that those words in verse 2 are actually described, uh, the, the answer to the, uh, the question, when's that going to happen, is found in Luke chapter 21. Matthew and Mark don't really speak to this. Um, But the questions revolving around the question of his coming and the end of the age is what the rest of Matthew 24 into 25, and then uh, uh, Mark chapter 13, and everything else in in Luke 21 around those verses describing 70 AD, that becomes uh, what the rest of this discussion has to do with. Now, in the course of, uh, of this discussion, we're going to see some very important details here that are expanded upon in greater detail in the book of Revelation. As a matter of fact, chapters 6 through chapter <coughs> 19, or 20 technically, but 19 really, with the return of Christ to establish his kingdom, um, that is what Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21 primarily are about. And so Jesus gives an answer to the question about his second coming, about the the end of the age and that in the rest of the chapter and the rest of the words that follow. So I'm going to uh, go ahead and just uh, take the next couple of verses, uh, and then we'll stop there for today, and we'll continue on in the days to come. Um, Now, verse 4, in response to their questions, Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Now, if you are familiar with the last days, you know that there are going to be wars and earthquakes and famines and pestilence, and and people are going to be um, killed for their faith and all of these kinds of things. And so we think of the last days as having a lot to do with those sorts of things. So it's interesting and significant that Jesus begins by talking about deception. He says that the last days are going to be characterized by a lot of deception, people claiming to be Christ who aren't and that kind of thing. 
Now, this is very, very important to us. It lets us know the importance of false teaching, of false teachers, and being able to recognize them and avoid them. Uh, matter of fact, Paul, doesn't he go on to say that in the last and later times, um, there will be doctrines of demons being pervasive throughout cultures and that kind of thing. Ultimately, the deception is going to be great. This deception ultimately reaches its climax uh, through the Antichrist and the false prophet who are empowered by Satan to deceive the world into thinking that the Antichrist is some, some sort of a god who is able to take on Christ at his return and that kind of thing. So deception, not just in the sense of like, oh, some confusing things, but some very directed uh, remember, Paul calls this doctrines of demons, teachings of demons, established philosophies of demons to accomplish deceptive deeds and and and, and deceptive ends. Uh, it's not a light sort of you know non-important peripheral thing. No, Jesus puts this right up front and center in terms of describing the last days. Be careful that nobody deceive you. In other words, watch out when those days are here. Deception is going to be the primary characteristic of it. And of course, in the crescendo of this, the world gathering together behind Antichrist to take on Christ, that is, you know, they have believed the lie uh, that, that the Antichrist has been propagating. Deception is completely pervasive in those last days, and believers in that time will need to be mindful of it. Uh, we'll talk about, as we make our way through, and we've already spoken in previous episodes, uh, who those believers in the tribulation period are, that believers during the period of time that Jesus is talking about, what groups that speaks of. We've talked about that. Uh, and we'll, we'll no doubt bring it up again as we make our way through this passage. But take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name. Right? Deception comes from a number of different directions. Uh, the most obvious would be false religions that claim false routes to heaven, godness, nirvana, whatever. Um, whether they be, you know, sort of, you know, your typical idea of what false religion would be, Islam, Hinduism, those kinds of things, or whether it be something more ethereal like New Age kinds of things where you can sort of become part of the divine spark and all this kind of thing. Um, and all these teachers like Jesus are just avatars that have sort of come before and have sort of pointed us in the direction that will lead us to enlightenment and those kinds of things. And so whether it's firmly structured kinds of religions or whether they be sort of nebulous, new agey kinds of things uh, or anything in between, uh, you know, this, this is one version of deception that we can sort of spot reasonably easily. If you have any level of biblical understanding, you can probably recognize the difference between those things and biblical Christianity. That's one kind of deception. Um, I would argue an even more insidious one, one that is far less on the nose than the other kinds of false and deceptive religions, is, is the kinds of deception that has begun, and I shouldn't say begun, it's been around since the time of the New Testament, but certainly in our days is no less pervasive and likely even more pervasive is that uh, are, are those deceiving teachers and that spirit of deception that undergirds some things that have come up even in the body of Christ or purporting to be part of the body of Christ. Now, we have things like the cults, for example, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, those kinds of things, um, uh, groups that believe that they are bringing the truth and restoring the church as Jesus wanted it to be in our day because it's been lost through the centuries and that kind of thing. They claim each of these two groups, which are very, very different from one another, uh, would, would each claim to be the restored church, 
we claim to be bringing truth back where it has been lost for all these centuries. And there's been nothing but a false church since the time of the apostles, but now they're here to restore it, that kind of thing. So we can recognize that deception because they claim to be bringing the truth of God, yet they completely um, contradict the truth of God in the Scripture uh, constantly. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's not difficult to find that. Um, so that's one kind of deception within the claiming to be body of Christ. But even more insidious, you could still sort of classify those under the false religion category in a way. Um, but they're claiming to be Christian, which is why we sort of put them in this side. But even more insidious than that are those who are claiming to hold to straight-up biblical doctrine and, and standing in pulpits, but are wildly misrepresenting what the Scriptures actually teach. This is people like Benny Hinn or Kenneth Copeland or uh, Frederick Price or Creflo Dollar or Rodney Howard Brown or Todd White or some of these sort of pop Christian pastors today that are um, that are sharing things that are, I mean, not only shockingly stupid, but they are arrogant and blasphemous and obvious heretical. Uh, and there are people um, sitting in large numbers listening to this kind of stuff. Um, it's horrific. And this is the kind of stuff that, in my opinion, is probably among the most dangerous kinds of deception. Because these are people that are claiming to know Jesus, and they're, they're sharing biblical truth, a fair amount of biblical truth in their services and their Bible studies and that. But then they bring out, in interdispersed between at least roughly sound teaching, they're bringing out ideas that are just completely off the, the radar wrong, massively heretical, disrespectful to God and his word, completely wildly off base in their understanding of theology, uh, of, of our relationship with God, of our position of what it means to be redeemed, how to be redeemed, all those kinds of things. False gospels oftentimes, that kind of thing. So it's just... This is the kind of stuff that Jesus said, watch out. These are those who are coming in my name. They're claiming to be representing me. Um, now, there will also be those, by the way, in the days to come that will claim to be Christ returned. Now, we've seen some of that throughout history as well. There are those that claim to be uh, the second coming of Christ. Um, uh people claiming that they are the Jesus spirit manifest and all kinds of varieties and versions of this kind of thing. It's interesting to me that as we make our way through Matthew 24 and the, the similar passages in Mark and Luke, that there are points at which Jesus gives ways to know that none of these shysters and charlatans are in fact him returned. Uh, and this is why understanding biblical truth is so important for us. Uh, this is why Paul, again, uh, hearkening to his, his writing to Timothy, would tell them to tell him to teach the word, to guard the teaching, because in doing so, he would protect both himself and those who are hearing him. Uh, from false teaching is what's implied there. The idea that they would be protected from that kind of, uh, um, you know, misleading, misdirection, uh, deception. And so, um, this is another reason why we study these passages, so that when we go through them, we can not only understand things from an eschatological standpoint in terms of Christ's coming, but he even gives uh, instruction here on how to know when someone is a false Christ or a, f a false representative of his and that kind of thing. 
And again, they are plenty. Remember, uh, Paul himself wrote to the Corinthians how Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light, so it should not surprise us that his emissaries do the same thing. So, that being said, that's sort of the entrance now into Matthew 24. We'll continue to make our way through uh, the rest of it uh, in the days ahead. Uh, I will give you a little bit of a, a homework assignment, a spoiler alert. Um, the next things that Jesus talks about actually line up very, very tightly. What we talked about today and the things that Jesus will talk about in the next handful of verses um, sound a lot like Revelation chapter 6, where the seals are beginning to open. So that being said, you might want to read Revelation chapter 6. And maybe even if, you, if you're so inclined, uh, maybe you want to go back and listen to our study from Sunday morning and our study in the book of Revelation from chapter 6 as well. And we'll talk about some of those things again here in the, uh, in the episodes to come. So thanks for joining. And uh, hopefully that whets your whistle a little bit for looking at this, um, what some have called the backbone of New Testament prophecy, uh, Matthew 24. Uh, There's going to be some other very important insights we're going to share about how to understand Matthew 24, uh, what light we're to see it in uh, as we make our way through it. So we'll get into more of that next time. So Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for helping us to understand um, these things, helping helping us to see uh, what is to come, that we might be prepared for it, and that, uh, like Paul admonished Timothy, uh, to so guard the truth that he was teaching so he would protect his hearers from being misled. Help us as students of your word. And for those of us who teach, those of us who uh, would open the word and, and seek to try and help share it with people, help us to recognize the importance of guarding that doctrine as well so that we don't mislead anyone. So Lord, we thank you and praise you that your Holy Spirit dwells within us as believers and will guide us into all truth and will ultimately remind us of the things that Jesus said. And so we pray that, Father, he would have uh, just freedom to move within our thinking, within our, uh, within our worldviews, within our understanding of Scripture, to make sure we understand these things as they were taught, that we would not just go off in strange directions like so many who abuse and misuse your word. So, Father, we uh, pray, Lord, for those who are under the sway of the deception that exists in our time. We pray that they, too, would become students of your word, that they, too, would submit to the Holy Spirit's leading and understanding these things. We pray that you'd expose false teachers and call them out. Uh, Father, we pray that you would protect people and cause people to seek your protection from these false teachers as well, these ravenous wolves, uh, under the influence of the enemy. Lord, I know that sounds strong, but Father, you know better than anyone. Your word is replete with warnings against going after such teachers. So help us, guide us, protect us, help us to be students of your word, people of the book, as it were, that we would be able to stay clear of that kind of deception, especially as we find ourselves in these last days. So thank you, Lord. We look forward to your coming. We look forward to seeing you face to face. We look forward and thank you that we can can look forward to you, seeing you without fear and without trepidation because you have bought and paid for us through the shed blood of Christ. And as you're redeemed, as your sons and daughters, your invited guests to the table, we can look forward with anticipation and just pure excitement at the prospect of standing before you one day and worshiping you and dwelling with you. Thank you, Father, that you dwell with us even now in these days by your Holy Spirit And we thank you that, Jesus, that you lead us and guide us by the Holy Spirit. We just, again, ask you to give him, the Holy Spirit, such influence in our lives that we would steer clear of false teaching and continue to walk in the light. Thank you, Father. We love you and praise you and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.